Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Prisonscape, the view from any window. Our music today will feature Youssef Latif, a multi-instrumentalist and composer from Detroit, and Clark Terry, a trumpet player and composer from St. Louis. We open with Eastern Market from the 1969 release Youssef Latif's Detroit. In an English romantic novel from 1796, the title character and hero, Marchmont, exclaims, Is it possible that for a small sum, such as it is likely such people as these can owe, their creditor has a right to shut them up from the common air and use of their limbs by which alone there can be any chance of their payment? Can laws that suffer and enforce this senseless cruelty be the very best that the wisdom and experience of mankind can devise for the government of civil society? An author of nine novels, a poet and sometime resident of debtor's prison, Charlotte Smith coined the term prisonscape in Marchmont. That use was meant for the view inside the prison. But today we're helped to understand that the prison is everywhere. That through the prison, the state has organized social and economic life for all of us. Our guest today is Brett Story, a geographer and award-winning non-fiction filmmaker and professor at Ryerson University in Toronto. We'll focus on her 2016 documentary film, The Prison in 12 Landscapes, and her 2019 book, Prison Land, Mapping Carceral Power Across Neoliberal America, published by the University of Minnesota Press. The book and film share the same motivation and research, but each offers a distinct and revealing treatment of the subject. They complement and deepen each other. In the manner of last week's show with Rasul Mowat, we'll explore the role of the state in constructing prison land. And while Brett Story's film offers 12 landscapes, we'll focus on three. The so-called Silicon Valley of the Midwest, Detroit, as owned and revitalized by Quicken Loans billionaire Dan Gilbert, St. Louis, Missouri, where municipalities proliferated to support an intensely segregated racialized geography and where taxes take the form of traffic stops and nuisance fines, leading to our modern version of Charlotte Smith's prisonscape or debtor's prison. And we'll begin in New York City with the private transportation that has sprung up to connect those imprisoned in the rural geographies of upstate New York with their loved ones and relatives who mainly live in the outer boroughs of Empire City. We'll hear clips from the movie throughout that have been edited for time constraints. And now, Prisonscape, the view from any window, on Interchange, on WFHB. I think the the part that got me hooked in originally, um, I think in, in when I was kind of just perusing the book before I even saw the film, was was the prison bus as a as a space of um, carceral power. It was one of those things that again is unseen, uh, but it's a situation in New York, and it, I assume it's probably not dissimilar in other 
places where there are large cities and prisons. But tell us a little bit about the buses that take these uh, mostly women, mostly women of color, to uh, visit the prison where they've got loved ones. Yeah. So New York, like a lot of places, has um, been building most of its new prisons over the past few decades in rural areas. And most of its prisoners come from a few neighborhoods in the cities. That's true elsewhere in the country. That's something, you know, that's something that was really important about what um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore demonstrated in her work that, you know, asking these geographic questions like where are prisons built and where prisoners come from offer us these answers and this knowledge. And um, as a result, you know, because prisons are far away and most family members live in the city, of course, there would be, I mean, it makes sense that there would be this transportation network that would arise. And in New York, it's the mainly private sort of set of vans and buses that have emerged and almost a little economy of privatized bus and van shuttles that have emerged to offer transportation for people, many of whom don't actually have access to a car, to take them to these um, institutions that are set very far away. So, you know, some of those rides are as long as 12 hours. They're almost always overnight. What people will do is they'll gather, there'll be some very specific um, pickup spots, depending on where the bus or the van is going. And then you you gather there. So in this case, the bus that I took is was the one that has the Attica prison on its route. It stops at five other institutions, so six in total. We gathered on the street corner in midtown Manhattan And, you know, you might wait for an hour or two hours and probably took you one or two hours to even get to Manhattan because a lot of these visitors are in Long Island or in Queens or in the Bronx. And then you get on the bus and you travel for eight, nine, 10 hours and arrive at the penitentiary the next morning for visiting hours. The bus rides themselves are, you know, they're hard. It's always hard to sleep on a bus, but this is a bus that stops frequently. It has kids on it. It's crowded. You don't have much leg room. Sometimes the bathroom isn't working. I mean, often the bathroom isn't working. And it's a very, very rough ride that many of the people that take these buses have been taking over and over again, sometimes weekly, or at least monthly for years and years and years, because people serve such long sentences. And so I wanted to show this scene. The the film opens with this bus ride and then ends with it, you know, and then I talk about it, about the bus as a particular kind of carceral space in my book. Um, I wanted to show it to demonstrate the collateral effect of the prison systems, right? It's not just individuals inside who are going through the deprivation of their freedoms and the depletion of their resources by being incarcerated, but it's the people that love them that are taking care of them, their mothers, their kids, their wives, their siblings, and also how prisons produce these auxiliary spaces and and a lot can happen. So sometimes nothing happens on the bus except that people endure it and they just deal with it and they just try and cobble together a few hours of sleep so they can just see their loved one the next morning. And sometimes people make friends and sometimes people do more than that. Like again, Ruth Gilmore's work has shown how especially mothers of incarcerated individuals in Los Angeles would organize, would meet each other via the bus and then organize from that. And in my experience on the bus, I didn't see explicit organizing, but I saw these signs of solidarity, like people giving each other tips, people bringing extra changes of clothes for each other. These sort of small gestures that demonstrate, hey, you're not alone. I recognize you. I know what you're going through. I'm going through the same thing. I've got your back. Nobody else has your back. The guard that we're going to meet at the visiting center tomorrow morning certainly doesn't have your back, but I've got it because I I get you. I know what you're going through. I'm going through it too. And I think that that kind of production of a shared space and the possibilities of uh, that can happen in that kind of shared space was also really important for me to 
to showcase. As you use the term collateral, you know, collateral space, it's, it's a prison, the bus itself. Right. Right. Your book, uh, Prison Land, and your documentary film, The Prison in 12 Landscapes, are complementary projects. The viewer and reader experience the situation, well, the, the viewer experiences the situation that seems so outlandishly ridiculous uh, and hellish. And, you know, it's hellish to imagine yourselves in these experiences, in these places, doing, having to do these things, being subjected to these indignities and everything else. And then also ridiculous in their arbitrary stupidities. As you watch them, you're like, you know, you're forced to say, how, how is this something that happens? Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Uh, And the book, you know, gives that how in the way that the, the film suggests the how perhaps, but the film is suggestive more than, you know, explanatory or didactic. So it's, they're such a nice compliment to each other. I, again, thank I, you. And yeah. because I work in different media forms, I think a lot about what one form can do that it's sort of allows it to be its best self and what I can't do. And for me, a film is not actually the best vehicle for a kind of didactic, intricate explication of a phenomena, whereas a, a book, especially an academic book, is. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a film, because a film circulates differently and also because it's it's a piece of art, I really do think of cinema, especially documentary, as, as art um, work, art media, it, it opens up a different kind of space for thinking, as a sort of space for thinking where you know, you as a viewer are watching something unfold, you're having feelings because the, the work of art is operating on your body, operating on the sensorial level, you're, you're hearing things, you're being moved, you're being confused. And then you've got the, you're being asked to sort of meet that work um, somewhere in between you as an audience member and the, and the intentions of the filmmaker. And I think that Precisely because this film, especially, you know, from its very premise, it's a film about the prison system in which you never see a prison. And instead, you you land in all of these spaces in seemingly free space, some of them even nice spaces like a, a kid's park. Mm-hmm. And you're asked to sort of confront that space and make sense of why it's in a prison film. It invites a different kind of learning and a coming into consciousness. This is a film that builds on the work that other people have done to bring my own attention to the way in which the the prison system and the carceral system sprawl across all sorts of aspects of everyday life and have these collateral consequences beyond the particular, you know, um, incidents of a person's incarceration. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is someone you, you mentioned several times throughout the book. And in, in I think it's in the introduction, you write that she describes prisons as uh, partial geographical solutions to political crises, which seems a, f- a fairly good elevator pitch about the book mm-hmm. and film. Um, what's what's the political crisis in question or the crises that, that the prison system is partially solving? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Ruth Gilmore's work. She's a a seminal prison geographer, economic geographer, and also prison abolitionist and organizer. And her work is really foundational to the field. And I build on it quite a bit in the book. Um, And I share her analysis. I mean, the analysis, I mean, and she, you know, she lays this out most deeply in her book, Golden Gulag, but in elsewhere in her writing and, and speaking, there's various crises, social crises, for which prisons end up operating as a kind of surrogate solution. What she describes in her book, Golden Gulag, which is about the rise of uh, the prison system and mass incarceration in the state of California, are the intersecting crises of surplus labor, 
by which she means or is meant not enough good work to go around, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, high unemployment or low wage work and, and, uh, and crisis of uh, the living wage no longer existing surplus capital, which is a sort of way of thinking through a Marxist lens about how in the history of of capitalism, there was a real crisis in the 1970s that got fixed in various ways. I mean, we see after that moment, the rise of neoliberalism, which is a kind of bundle of experiments towards increasingly defunding public goods and privatizing and individualizing state resources and public resources. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Brett Story, author of Prison Land, mapping carceral power across neoliberal America and award-winning filmmaker of The Prison in 12 Landscapes. And our show today focuses on how social and economic being is organized in relation to the carceral state. When we think of social crises, what do we mean? I mean, we mean a lot of different things. We, at this moment, we mean the crises of rising inequality. Um, and one thing you can see when you look at um, countries in the world where incarceration rates have gone up is that that tracks alongside both the um, decline of the welfare state and the rise of inequality. The more you impoverish people and the more you um, cut their access to state uh, welfare resources like healthcare, education or housing, the more you have this crisis on your hand. And, and one means that the state has used to resolve it is to um, threaten people constantly with criminalization and lock a lot of people up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sort of you can think of it as a kind of mopping up of these crises. Um, and it's also a preemption of the real and constant threat of a social crisis in the form of social protests. And so this is the other thing we see in the 60s and 70s, just before we saw numbers of uh, people inside America's prisons start to skyrocket is had urban um, rebellions all over the United States. Describe the one of uh, uh, lawlessness where there are roving groups of individuals who are uh, looting and uh, throwing rocks and uh, creating uh, difficulty and danger for individuals and uh, damaging property. Sir, do you believe it's out of control at this point? Well, it's not in. Uh, complete control yet and of course that's the reason that uh, state police have been made available and also national guardsmen now we've uh, put in about uh, 300 state police and about 600 uh, national guardsmen in the area to protect the people and the uh, property from the acts of uh, lawless elements they shot up stairs to the third floor apartment building and then then they started shooting tear gas and everything, and then they brought a tank out here, and they started spraying the whole apartment because they weren't sure, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after, after you know, they shot the tear gas in, 
they had us to come out of the pile and go put our hand over our head and lay out, lay out there in the middle of the street. You know? And uh, I told them that my wife was pregnant, you know, and so, so they uh, had us to go back beside the alley. And we went back to the alley, and after that was all over, we, uh, the hash returned, but we couldn't stay in the same apartment because all that tear gas was in there. And I think that's about all. What did you do when, the, when they started firing into the building? I laid on the floor and put my head down. People protesting their lack of civil rights, the um, theft of the social wage, the other attacks on social well-being and individual well-being um, along racial contours. And that's one of the scenes in my film, of course, is this uh, archival footage of 1967 rebellion in Detroit that saw a Black-led multiracial uprising against not only police violence, but political disenfranchisement and lack of resources in terms of jobs and, and social provisions. There was a huge police crackdown, and we see in that moment both Lyndon B. Johnson and then President Nixon declare a war on crime and demonize protesters as criminals. So we see that strategy, the use of the criminalization apparatus, the police, and then the carceral regime, the prison regime, as a way of, of also quashing social dissent. Again, uh, from the introduction, you talk about Stuart Hall building mm-hmm. on uh, Gramsci's work and the organizing capacity of the state, the state as an organizer and putting mm-hmm. capacity into force. And you quote Hall saying, the state is the key instrument which enlarged the narrow rule of a particular class into a universal class leadership and authority over the whole formation. Uh, the state takes on these forms of power, but they are there to uh, serve this narrow rule of a particular class. Mm. So, and so, you know, when we talk about the carceral state, we talk about the state in any sort of formation, you know, its work is to serve this particular class. It, the prison system as an organizing form serves that class. It's important to recognize that the state as we know it now doesn't have to, isn't the only version of the state that we might have, right? So the state as we have it now is certainly organizes its own capacity, including our own, you know, this what's called the social wage, mm-hmm. to um, maintain these um, in very intense social and racial hierarchies. So we live in a class system and a, a system of racial differentiation, and those things overlap. I mean, again, to quote Stuart Hall, race is the modality through which class is lived. The state that we know and have is one that has decided to um, use its resources to maintain and serve a a capitalist order, a racial capitalist order that um, enables those hierarchies and that social differentiation to continue. Mm -hmm. And insofar as the state has privileged institutional elements and infrastructures like the carceral system or the police or the military, you know, like that's what, that's where the money's going. It's not going towards a, in America, at least it's not going to a healthcare system. It's not going to affordable, good housing for all. It's going to to police and prisons and, and soldiers. So insofar as the state has decided to use its capacity and use the social wage and put them into those arms and those infrastructures, then it is doing so to uphold and maintain a Uh, an economic order, a racial economic order that requires exploitation and requires inequity in order for exploitation to continue. 
people wouldn't work bad, unhealthy $8 an hour jobs if they didn't have to, if they didn't, uh, if they, if they had maybe the resources available to live a good life without that, but they, they need to be deprived of access to the means to survive in order to be coerced to do that kind of work. And capitalism requires that. And we see the state in its current form as serving capitalism rather than serving people. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a version of the state. Again, going back to your sense of the state also existing as an idea, you know, a robust organizational entity that is there to organize capacity and do something with our money, you know, that couldn't do something else and that that couldn't serve the people in a in a democratic way in a in a just way we just don't have that particular version of the state well it's obviously a question that that might not be a possible version of the state uh, as a, as a as it is a coercive form it's hard sometimes you know to think about these forms as being possibly good and that the the form itself yeah. is the problem i also think that there's a sort of there's a lot of work to do to sort of figure out if that's necessarily true. Like mm-hmm. what is something bad by definition or inherently so, or because of the way it's been tasked. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I, I know there's certainly people out there that think that the police can be reformed and that mm-hmm. there, there's a version of the police that could do good. And I think there's many other people like myself that would respond the the good things that you want the police to do, they couldn't do as police, right. you know, so we right. could fund harm reduction workers. We can uh, fund crisis workers that, right. you know, respond to interpersonal violence, but the utopian vision you have for what the police should be doing instead of what they're doing makes them not police anymore. Right. And, right. and the police as an, inst- the police as an institution cannot be reformed, cannot do anything and has never done anything other than what it has been today still tasked with right. doing, which is upholding and enabling Um, continuous plunder um, and social differentiation. It's time for a break. This is No Problem, off of Clark Terry's 1961 release, Color Changes, featuring Youssef Latif. More on the organizing form of the prison when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest is Brett Story, author and filmmaker, and our topic is the prison as an organizing form. Story's film, The Prison in Twelve Landscapes, doesn't go into prisons, but shows how prisons create and limit our social and economic relations. All the world's a prison, run by the state, and we are merely inmates. (laughs) 
So the logic of the prison as an organizing form uh, is is kind of expressed throughout the book and throughout the film, right? And it's it's something that can be experienced and is experienced on a daily basis um, as as something as simple as a traffic ticket or something as simple as, you know, a ticket for a broken taillight. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of open the, I think it's the introduction you open with the examples of Jennings and Ferguson, Missouri, you know, places that have criminalized, well, basically just being black in those two places, but have criminalized uh, these kinds of, you know, infractions or have created these infraction spaces so that they can uh, tax and keep impoverished the, the local population uh, and in mm-hmm. a sense create debtors prison right so there's that's yeah. one one kind of logic of what the the prison form does uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to prison although it frequently does you know that's that's a thing that's kind of the focus of your book right is this is a little thing that we wouldn't think about as prison you know a traffic right. oh, a traffic ticket. I mean, that's that's a central idea of the book is that that itself is the prison system. That's the, that's the carceral state. That's the prison you don't see, uh, that you don't recognize as a prison. You know, we have to ask critical questions about how these institutions came to be. How does this space come to be? And what does what functions does it serve? And it's the suggestion of the book that we can't answer that question if we think about the prison system solely through the lens of you know, crime and punishment or the criminal justice apparatus. And then actually, if you if you t- kind of take a wider and deeper view and ask questions like, what is the tax policy? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is zoning look like in this place? How is housing organized? That we come to actually some clearer answers about why jails are so full or why prisons are so full. So in the St. Louis region, why are jails so full? What is killing part is they give you tickets and they have an address. St. Francis on here. It's not in St. Francis. And they they had it on Charmin there. Now they don't have it on Charmin there. They got it here. This is the third place I don't went to today. It's a bunch of Mickey Mouse stuff. Yeah. Close mouth on that. You see, y'all, they were too. <laughs> I called the place and asked. It's a recording. And the recording says St. Francis. My license plate had went out and I, I had uh, went on and renewed them. Since I didn't have my paperwork with me, they uh, gave me a ticket and, had, and they gave me a $150 court cost fee. $150 for a court cost. So I'm coming here to play the court cost. I, don't, I ain't trying to be funny, but uh, I see nothing but me. So that's all I'm gonna say that, you know, you can look at look at the people and you can tell what, what's going on here. I got jumped on and I got my ass bust $1,200 to get out of jail the same day they killed Mike Brown. I was damn near getting, I was finna get tased if it wasn't too many people watching, if we wasn't in the middle of Lindbergh like we was. I got my ass jumped on. I still, I still suffer from, you know, pain injuries within my abdominal. I don't know if it's from, from the surgery or if I don't know if it's from these motherfuckers jumping on me and punching me in my stomach a month after getting out the hospital. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So, no, everybody's going around saying Mike Brown, hands up, don't shoot. This could have been Antoine Cotton, hands up, don't shoot. Because my hands was definitely in the fucking air. This fucking line ain't even this long when it's registration time to register your kids in school.
well, jails are so full because people are constantly being fined for these very minor infractions. Well, okay, why are people being fined, you know, at a rate so much higher? And why is it mostly poor people and black people that are getting constantly stopped by the police and fined for walking across the street or not putting their um, trash can lid on correctly? Well, it's because over the past 40 years, tax code has been changed over and over and over again until the municipalities of this region have very little capacity to raise municipal budgets through taxation. They're using these fines and the policing of these behaviors as a way of getting revenue. Okay, well, why is why is this taxing such a problem? Well, one of the reasons is because uh, going back to racist redlining in the 60s and a desire of like white middle class communities not to have to see their taxes go to funding people of lesser means than them and especially people of color. And so this particular region was zoned such that um, something like 90 different tiny municipalities were, were carved out of a few miles ringing around the city of, of St. Louis. And so you not only have this problem where the municipalities can't collect enough taxes to pay their garbage collectors, but that there's 90 of them. There's 90 different municipalities that are not allowed to share resources that must collect enough money to function. And that comes out of housing racism and ways in which municipalities were changing in the 60s in the wake of the civil rights movement. Um, so again, like if we just ask the question through the lens of criminal justice or just through the lens of a sort of like crime and punishment, we'd say, oh, jails are full, so full in St. Louis because people are doing so many bad things because there's so much crime. And that's just not the right answer. It's not the just answer. And it's not a productive answer because it doesn't actually offer up a set of solutions. When you think about the sort of problem of debtors prisons and debtors jails in St. Louis, and related to that, of course, police harassment and police violence, like we saw in the police killing of Mike Brown, and widen our gaze so that we can see it through the question of land use and housing policy and tax policy, then we can also come up with solutions. Like maybe taxes should be raised. Maybe there should be a, a you know, more commercial taxes, especially on businesses that are making over a certain amount per year. Maybe you know, municipalities should merge so that there isn't so, you know, the rich communities weren't hoarding for their own and leaving the poor neighborhoods to fend for themselves. There's all sorts of ways to think past and beyond the real problem and real harm of sending people to jail because they're poor. Right. Um, and we, we can only come up with those solutions once we sort of can see the sort of un, the real underlying structures and problems for which policing and jails and and prisons become a a kind of surrogate solution. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Brett Story, author of Prison Land, mapping carceral power across neoliberal America and award-winning filmmaker of The Prison in 12 Landscapes. And our show today focuses on how social and economic being is organized in relation to the carceral state. Well, it's a strange thing to think of that way in terms of solutions, right? Because the you know the issues that you point out, if if municipalities can't fund their garbage collection um, because they don't have a tax base, and taxing becomes policing in the sense of you know writing tickets, um, it you know again it makes you ask the question: What's the municipality that decides to tax its its you know to tax its residents this way, right? And and for that to be okay. 
mm-hmm. you know, to try to understand, you know, how, um, how it's okay. <laughs> like who, who, like, I think in the film you point to a particular, I think it's a white defense attorney, or I don't remember if it's like the mm, one, it's, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's pretty ridiculous. I think he basically said this, this isn't a, this isn't one of the bad places, right? That right. there, there are worse places in St. Louis than this one. Um, we only raised fourteen million dollars through this uh, particular means of. Uh, I couldn't. Yeah, extraction. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Oh hi. Um. Hello. My, my name is David Nauman. I'm a private defense attorney. I've been in business here in the city of Florissant since 1979, and my family goes back in this community to approximately eight, 1850. Um. You now I understand. You know, no one's happy when they get a get a traffic ticket, but this court is not one of the abusive courts. People have got to remember, Florissant has 52,000 people, and it is not the number one court in revenues in this county. There's at least one city, St. Anne, with 12,000 people that in fiscal 2013 took in 3,369,000, or I think this city in 2013 took in about 2.6 million. Florissant is a beautiful community. So that's a guy that's being served by this particular system. And he's a defense lawyer, right? right so it's a, right. These, these systems beget their own stakeholders. Right. And that's part of what makes them so intractable, right? Like, yeah. why is it now going to be so hard to change the system? Because there's a lot of people that are making their bread and butter off of it. And they're the people who already have power, right? right? Not right. the people who don't have power, who are too busy standing in line to pay their fine for right. something they shouldn't have been fined for in the first place to go and organize for change. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, the lines of people waiting. Yeah, it was just, and and everybody's like, you know, I went to this place and that place and this place before I ended up coming here because that one was closed, even though it said to go to that place. Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's, it's Kafkaesque. It's too literary and, you know, not, I don't know, maybe it is. No, it is, it (laughs) is Kafkaesque because it's not designed for people to feel like they understand there's no reason. There's right, no good right, reason behind right. how the system is organized. It's, right. it's solely meant to disempower. And one of the ways it disempowers is by by confusing, right? right? right. Um, you can follow all the rules, even if the rules are Byzantine and, and serve no purpose. You can follow them and still find yourself entrapped by the system. And that's what makes it Kafka-esque. I think you make the point also that, it, you know, this is a racial project in this way, right? That people working hard to try to do the things right can't do the things right. You know, there's just not possible. And obviously you don't say it in the film, but you you show one white guy, yeah. you know, who's served by it and, you know, lines and lines of black people. Yeah. Waiting I mean, I think that's why I don't need to say anything, no, right? right. You don't, don't need that. to find right. the, the the note that says, okay, the system, we're going to design this system to be racist. We right. can look at its effects, you know, who's being disenfranchised, who's being made into a permanent underclass, right. who's, who's kept from ever achieving any, any modicum of stability through this system. Right. Well, it's poor people and those poor people are also black people. Right. And that's not coincidence. No, and you know, I think you say also, you know, this is a way that we make uh, you know, anti-citizens, right? The, these aren't these aren't these aren't people anymore once they're no longer uh, citizens. And so, you know, we sort of dis- disenfranchise a whole group and you say this you know, this is a, a a primary function of this system is to counter black social I think you call it black sociability, sociality, sociality but yeah, black yeah. sociality and and the fact that there could be a counterpower 
to this particular state in that black sociality. You know, that's, that's that, and there yeah. always has been, right? right I mean, right. I think that it's it's a that's why it's really important. You know, thinking about people like Jordan Camp's work, um, Stuart Trader's work, other people, uh, Donna Murch. Elizabeth Hinton, these are people who've demonstrated that the uprisings we've seen, it's not incidental that they're both multiracial and black led, or in some cases, Hispanic led, you know, they're led by the people who are constantly disenfranchised, you know, who are fighting for their freedom. I mean, I end my film with the shot, the only the film's only actual image of a prison, and it's Attica prison, and that's deliberate. It's an homage to, it's a way of honoring the, the brave and courageous incarcerated individuals who stood up against not only the injustice of their own incarceration in 1971, but the, the people in Vietnam who are defending their sovereignty during the war in Vietnam, the, the people all over the world who've been subject to imperial violence and the people at home who are subject to that continual violence as well. So I, I think it's really important. You know, one of the things I was asking myself in both the book and the film is like, what do prisons do? <laughs> Um, Because they don't do what we're told they do, right? Right, They were told that they keep bad people away and they keep the rest of us safe. Well, they don't do that. Um, And there's lots of data demonstrating that to be true. So the question remains, what is it that they do? And it's important to recognize that they also produce resistance to their own legitimacy. And, And I think, you know, that's part of what I mean, you know, following Fred Moten talking about black sociality. It's like sometimes that resistance looks like an uprising and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just looks like, you know, like a church choir, but it's like, it's, it's a sort of camaraderie in recognizing oneself as part of a, of a, of a group um, and knowing that there's power and togetherness and a power and belonging to, um, to community and to, um, and in solidarity with others. And, always going to be a threat to the powers that be because the powers that be are a minority. It's time for another break. This is The Philanthropist from Youssef Latif's 1960 release, The Centaur and the Phoenix, which features Clark Terry on trumpet. More with Brett's story and our prisonscape when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Prisonscape, the view from any window, with guest Brett Story. Again, from Charlotte Smith's 1796 novel Marchmont. There it is, that he who is once able to make a figure and is esteemed rich, sees all the crimes forgotten by which he became so. They are the profligate pensioner, the titled parasite, the plunderer of his own country or of any other and even the private robber who has address enough to rob within the pale of the law is not only tolerated, but respected. 
In this final third of our show, we'll take a tour of some prison land sites, starting with Dan Gilbert's Detroit. Before we run out of time, we should move into some of your, your particular sites, right? Your, your locations and why they're a part of the prison land, you know, why they're mm-hmm. a part of this carceral state. And uh, let's start with Detroit, because in the film in particular, it's the most, again, some these things just kind of are ridiculous. <laughs> they're just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Things are absurd and we should laugh at them. Yeah, more, more Kafkaesque. It's, it's absurd on its face, right? But, uh, but not because it's, it's terrifyingly powerful. Uh, which again is Kafkaesque. So, you know, we're stuck with Detroit and you, you point to the, I guess, basically the buying of the city by yes. by billionaire, I forget his name, Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert. It? Yeah. And this is a Quicken Loans company. How did you get there? Why did, why did you do that? Sure. I've been doing um, a lot of thinking already about the relationship between urban space and prison space. I come to my own thinking and activism around prisons as a as a housing activist doing work around gentrification and, and thinking about how and why cities gentrify, mm-hmm. um, why evictions happen, why real estate in urban centers has been increasing, especially since the 90s. That work is what brought me to the problem of police and prisons. So as soon as you start doing work on gentrification or start thinking about rising real estate values in urban space, you re- you also start to notice that um those are the, the, those are the same contexts in which mayors are passing um, quality of life ordinances mm-hmm. and authorizing their police to go out and start harassing um, people for what are real, really victim-free behaviors, panhandling, sleeping on benches, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, broken windows policing came out of the gentrification of New York and, and Los Angeles and continues in various forms. So I'd already been thinking about how this problem of policing, criminalization, policing, and prisons intersects with the rise of the sort of ultra-rich city and the gentrified city. And was sort of thinking about how to bring that into the film. I read an article, you know, because at this time, over the past 10 years, Detroit is really being held up as the kind of poster child for deindustrialization. Oh, look what happens when your, your main economic founder... Um, or, or corporate entity, you know, leaves town, moves elsewhere, where you get the kind of abandonment, mass abandonment that we've seen in Detroit. That's the way that narrative goes. And it's, it's partially true. But of course, I think that obfuscates the degree of state abandonment that's also at play. And uh, I had read this newspaper story about this billionaire who had decided to single-handedly revitalize, economically revitalize, which is, again, code for gentrification, the city of Detroit. And that's Dan Gilbert, a billionaire who's made his wealth primarily through an online mortgage company called Quicken Loans. Ironically, because of course, we know Detroit was sort of one of the ground zeros for the mortgage crisis of uh, 2008, the, the right. housing crash. Right. And this was a few years ago, I read this story about how Dan Gilbert was single-handedly like buying up all of these empty properties in downtown Detroit and like filling them with tech companies and startups and trying to create a, a sort of Silicon Valley of Michigan. And in the story, there was a kind of profile of one room in his headquarters. I think it was like the Chase Tower. And this one room was just wall-to-wall video feeds connected to security cameras across 
the city. So something like a thousand different security cameras all feeding into video screens that some security guard would watch over from this particular command center, this room that was called the command center. And I thought, there we go. I just need to get into this room. You know, <laughs> this is me as a filmmaker talking. Right, right. This room will demonstrate, you know, precisely how and why the surveillance of urban space is intimately tied to the recuperation of real estate profit. And so I contacted um, Quicken Loans, they're just sort of media desk, and I asked if I could film in this room and they said, no, I couldn't, but they invited me to take this, this PR tour. When I went down, they told me that Madonna had been there the week before taking this tour. Um, but over here, the view is amazing. So behind the fountain, was just grass. And we decided, okay, let's do something to attract people. So we built a beach and we put a bar. And when the day is over um, and at lunchtime and on the weekends and in the evenings, this place is packed. So our culture is tied to these things we call isms. And our isms are our belief system. There's 19 of them do the right thing, we'll figure it out, obsessed with finding a better way, they're, they're everywhere. Ignore the noise. And every person in every one of our companies, and here's some of our companies right here, uh, no matter what position they're in across the country, come in for orientation and they spend an entire day with Dan Gilbert who talks about our culture and who we are. And that's the magic dust that floats around here. Let's talk about um, safety and security. This is the safest part of town. We partner with the Detroit police, the state police, the county, the border patrol. We all work together as a team. We even have secondary employment uh, officers that when they're off duty, they work for us in uniform. We have our own security, feet on the street, our own cars. We have bikers. We um, keep an eye and it is awesome and when our team members and our tenants and the community knows it's safe they come and they come because there's a perception and then there's reality and you're seeing reality right now one year ago you would have now walked through here with an army of soldiers protecting you now this is being redeveloped and the apartments prices have more than doubled since we moved down three and a half years ago. So they were very proud and very happy for me to take this tour. And I honestly didn't think much would come of the tour itself. I thought it might be a way to make some sort of connection that would allow me to get into this room or, or just basically learn more about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I took the tour with my team and that's the scene that you see in the film. And then I then write about in the book. And it's a really a kind of way in which like just experience of being toured across these buildings that again, Dan Gilbert and his companies are buying at what were called skyscraper sale prices presents kind of everything that we need to know about how capitalism functions to organize 
racial segregation, class segregation, the unaffordability crisis, the housing crisis. I mean, when the summer that we were there touring all of these buildings that were mainly populated by outsiders, you know, mainly white people, Detroit was also that very summer going through this water crisis that that maybe people remember in which people were getting these skyrocketing water bills and were no longer um, able to afford to pay them. And so their water was getting shut off. And in some cases, you know, people would like find a way to turn their water back on and then they would be charged for having stolen water, which is just an insane way to think about how a world should be, right? And yet was happening mainly again to the overwhelmingly black population, working class black population that has always been the, the community that makes up Detroit. Detroit is just one place I could have I could have chosen many others to demonstrate this really intimate and essential relationship between how property is secured and how property values get secured and increasing a way in which like the most profitable properties tend to be urban properties, real estate properties. And so the organization of that financial recoupment in urban space goes hand in hand and necessitates this dispossession of access to resources. And then also the security regime, wherein like in the city of Detroit, again, private security guards are working hand in glove with public police precincts to, you know, conduct raids on majority black um, neighborhoods and also enforce quality of life ordinances in the downtown core where Dan Gilbert is trying to maintain a sort of facade of financial respectability and financial recoupment. Yeah, it's um, it's an embarrassment. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Brett Story, author of Prison Land, mapping carceral power across neoliberal America and award-winning filmmaker of The Prison in 12 Landscapes. And our show today focuses on how social and economic being is organized in relation to the carceral state. I mean, obviously you're angry, you know, when you watch things like this and you see it and you see it in the carnival barker kind of way that you're, you're sort of taking this tour with this ridiculous carnival barker pointing out all the great things. And, and then, sh- you know, you show the basic oasis from, from the tower right down into the streets where there's this oasis of a playground of sorts, mm-hmm. right? And, you're, mm-hmm. and you just think to yourself, how embarrassing to be these people. You have to have zero self-awareness or also, I guess, a, a giant amount of self-entitlement. Yeah, you know, in your life, to think that that this this existed as it has, with not by design to serve your kind of person, to serve your. Well, I think that that's one of the things that criminal justice does is it enforces a sort of mythology that lets people's self entitlement go unquestioned, right? I mean, I think the very even the very category of the criminal is an immediate way to to delegitimize a person's right to a thing. So if you're a person who's gone into a store, you, you know, who is not, you know, your employer has engaged in wage theft or you're continuing, you know, you're working a full-time job, but you're only making $9 an hour and you don't have enough to live. And you go into a store to steal some baby formula because that's the only way your kid's going to survive. You get called a criminal. And so anyone who's looking at you is like, oh, that person's a criminal, they brought it upon themselves. Right. And so you, it, it's a way of casting what is actually a, a, I don't know, all the kind of hoarding of wealth that's going on. I mean, even right. middle-class life disables people from seeing the amount of wealth hoarding and resource hoarding that's that's happening. But the, the very sort of logic of criminality is part of the system that helps 
blind people to that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned throughout the sort of responsibilizing of neoliberal policies, right? Or the idea of the individual being the, you know, the sole responsible party for one's well-being. Uh, and, yeah. You know, these are these are obviously ways in which we are able then to demonize anyone who has no opportunity, right? Who has, who's stuck into these places and then can't fulfill any of the things that you, you, you've been told are the right, the right ways to be or do or, or succeed, et cetera, et cetera. I went to Northwoods because they told me I had a warrant there. I said, no, I've never got a ticket there before. So they gave me the ticket and I just started crying right there because I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. The ticket stated that the trash can lid was not secured to the can. This is their writing. This is the officer's writing. And I'm like, I now have a warrant for my arrest because the trash can lid was not secured to the can. Therefore, trash was exposed, not on the ground, but it's exposed. She said, yeah. <laughs> I said, how much? I said, I can't have this warrant. I need to take care of it. How much does this cost? $175. I said, so you, I, I've never seen this ticket. The officer brought it to your house. I don't care what the officer says. He never gave me this ticket because I'm here talking to you now. I would have been here talking to you then. I never had the ticket. What, what signature do you have that the ticket was handed to me? Um, on the ticket, it stated that he was at the house. Um, and excuse me if the times aren't exact, but approximately about 7.08 a.m. Writing the ticket. And it, at the bottom where it says delivered, it says like 9 p.m. I'm like... So he sat outside in the morning and wrote the ticket and just dropped it off where he went home that night or something? Or just came back after he left home and dropped off a ticket? Doesn't make sense. So, well, you're gonna pay the ticket or you're going to jail. I said, I guess I'm going to jail. Um, I had the money. I just didn't, I said, I worked too hard for my money to give my money to you over a freaking trash can lid. You know, just come on. So um, I went over to the police department to turn myself in. And every, the women were just like, you're going to arrest her? And they were like, yeah. The cops that weren't black in there treated me like I was any common criminal coming through the station. And the ones that were more compassionate were the black females because um, it was wrong. You know, the lady waited to the last minute to book me. She was just like, your friend's outside. She says she'll pay your bond. I said, no, her money shouldn't go towards this. My money is not going to go to it. Her money isn't going to go towards it. It's not fair. And she was like, so you're going to jail? I'm not paying the ticket. You tell me what are my options. So um, they, they had me take all my clothes off and gave me this jumpsuit for jail. And they fingerprinted me and, and they put me in a cell. This cell had uh, feces on the wall, blood on the wall. Um, the mattress was cut up and nasty. They gave me some little blanket. Um, and I had to fold that blanket in half and sleep on that blanket for three days. Because of the condition of the jail, when they attempted to feed me, I chose not to eat. And eventually by the third day, I'm like, I don't feel good. I hadn't eaten, I hadn't had any water or anything. And I'm still sitting here. And um, I said, so how long do you hold somebody on the trash can lid? And he told me, 15 days. And I said, you're going to hold me in here for a trash can lid for 15 days? I said, I'll pay the damn bond. 
and to have zero capacity to stop it, but to have the strength to try to stand on your correct, like your rightness, right? Your morality, your space, your stance. This, you know, this is something I can't, I can't pay. I don't. There's no reason to pay this, to be broken by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that story. I mean, in some ways, it's the sort of. You know, there's nothing that special about it aesthetically or the composition right. in terms of cinema, but it's the heart of the film. And I think it's the it's the emotional crux of the film. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of moment where I I also feel like that when I watched that part of the film mm-hmm. and when I interviewed that woman, Sherry, it's just it brings into relief all of the absurdity and injustice that we've witnessed everywhere else. Right. right, right. Um, yeah. I mean, Sherry's just a woman that. um I, I met through one of my contacts in St. Louis, which were um, this organization called Arch City Defenders, a, a group of really, really amazing lawyers and other staff who provide legal support for people without financial means and who've been sounding the alarm on this system of overfining and hyperfining of the residents in the St. Louis County region. Um, they connected me to Sherry, who they had represented. And she told me this story, which was, I mean, it's devastating, but it was also resonant with all the other stories I heard when I was going up and down those lines in front of the courthouse, because that's what it, that's what the system does to you. You know, even when you try and express your anger, your, your right to dignity, it says, yo, you dare express your, your anger and your, and your right to dignity. We will degrade you even further until you have no choice, but to to concede. And that's what's so devastating, but also so necessary about her story is that her anger is legitimate. And I feel like that's actually what brings me most to tears is to Mm -hmm. just feel it with her. That's our show. We'll close with Russell and Elliot. Another track from Youssef Latif's Detroit. Those are the cross streets of Latif's elementary school. Thanks to Brett Story for two insightful and damning works, one of scholarship and one of art. And thanks also to Story for the use of segments of her great documentary, The Prison in Twelve Landscapes. And finally, a big thanks to those of you who pledged your money in support of WFHB and Interchange. You are my co-producers. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.